0: I invite you to turn to your worship folder. On the front page is our uh, scripture reading for today. We're studying in the first letter of John, chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. I like it when we read God's word together. Let's do that. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now one of the perhaps legends or uh, just old thing that is said about the Apostle John is that he was dearly loved by the church. That here was a man who... In his teenage years, gave up everything, gave up his family's business, gave up uh, the direction of his life in order to follow Jesus. And he became the beloved disciple of Jesus. He went through persecution. He got chased out of towns. He was exiled. He was put into a a place all by himself in some ways. I mean, this man through thick and through thin, through the difficult times and the good times, he followed Jesus till he died. And uh, they said that the church loved just to hear his voice. Even when he, he was uh, you know very old, perhaps blind, they would still they bring him up to the pulpit because they just wanted to hear his voice. And, and what we're getting here in this chapter and in this letter, we're getting the summation of his apostolic life. We're getting the nuggets, the, the, the gems... Of his apostolic life. He wants you to understand that there are main things. And that those main things better be the plain things in your life. And uh, the plain things are often the main things. So one of these things that he's telling us here. When he talks about you abiding in God and God abiding in you. He's saying that you know basically here's the thing. That you have the possibility that you have available to you. Everything that is true of the life of God living in you, and everything that's true of you living in the life of God. That it is available to you to have a right relationship with God. As a matter of fact, he's describing in these chapters what it means to be a Christian. What it means to have faith. And he gives he gives three tests. Um, he gives a test that I would call the truth test. Do you believe and know the truth he gives a test that I would call the character behavior test do you live as one who has been changed by the truth and then he gives the most important test and that's the love test do you love as you have been loved let me just look with you for a minute at the truth test he he, he gives this test in four of the verses that we read First, he says, do you believe that the Father, the first person of the Trinity, has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world? Do you believe this as a reality? Do you think this is a historical fact? This is the beauty of the Christian faith. Our faith does not create anything. Our faith embraces it. If it's true, we believe it. If it's not true, no amount of believing is going to make it true. And he says, here's the truth. God the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And then he says, if this is your confession, not just is it a truth that you assent to, is it a truth that you recognize, but is this the confession of your own heart that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's your Savior, that he's your Lord. Does, does Jesus, is he who he says he is? And do you confess that? And then, he takes this step, and it's a again, it's a, it's a statement of fact. God is love. So do you know, he says, and do you believe that the love that God has is for you? It's for you. And then I would say the fourth of the truth test in this passage is this. Do you understand that there's a day of judgment coming? Now, I'll tell you why this is so important in our day and time. Nobody likes to talk about judgment. I don't like to talk about judgment. But there's a reality that when you die, you will stand before God. It is a reality. And the interesting thing is we are the first age. We are the first society that is utterly secular and doesn't believe in afterlife. Now, here's what that belief does for you is it makes you say things like that. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you behave. See, when someone says to you, it doesn't matter how you believe, and it doesn't matter how you behave, they are expressing a necessary belief that they have. In other words, it does not matter how you believe, because they believe there is no judgment. As long as you believe there is no judgment, then it doesn't matter what you believe. But you have to believe there is no judgment. But if you believe as the Apostle John believed, as Jesus taught, that there is a judgment, then it matters everything how you believe. And it matters everything how you behave. Because when you come before God, it will all be revealed. Do you think it's bad when you see your complexion? In a fluorescent light, you just wait till you see your life in the brightness of the glory of God. Moses could barely look at the back parts of God's glory. Isaiah was utterly undone just to see a glimpse of the glory of God. He began to rat us all out. He didn't just say, I have a man of unclean lips. He said, I come from a people of unclean lips. You know, you start to realize that when you're in the light of God's glory, everything is revealed. Nothing is hidden. Everything you thought you kept secret is now shouted from the rooftops. This matters. But the, the second test, we'll look at more next week. The second test is the issue of character and the issue of obedience. And we'll talk about this more, but here, here is a simple reality. You can pass these two tests and still not be a Christian. Satan is an expert theologian. The demons are professors of systematic theology. They know everything about theology. As a matter of fact, they can argue from any theological viewpoint. So long as they can stir up division and strife and schism. The behavior test is not a test of how well you conform to somebody's standards. The behavior test is a test of character. And in a sense, you see, you can fool us. I can fool you by my behavior. Man looks on the outer parts. God looks on the heart. And so if you're in a group of people and the people say to you, here's how you behave if you go to church. Here's how you behave if you're from a Christian family. Here's how you behave. And you behave that way. You could still be a child of hell. You could still be lost as can be. Because all you're doing is conforming to what people have told you the appropriate behavior is to be a part of our club. And anybody can change their behavior. The issue is the heart. This is why the third test is the most important test. Do not misunderstand me. The first two are important. If there is no change of character, no change of behavior, if there is no change into you being a person who believes and lives by the truth, if there's no such change as that, then you've you've failed the test. You You can't win this test by getting one out of three. It has to be three out of three. And again, these are not my words. These are John, the apostle, who lived this godly life, lived it, and is telling you at the end of his life, this is what matters. Now, I've, I've said a statement a minute ago. I'd like you to remember this. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And it's better for you to focus and major on the main things than to, and minor on the minor things. The main thing is God is love. And the main thing is that you are loved by God, not because you loved him, but because he first loved you. And then that expression of that love has to then work itself into your heart and into your life in such a way that you are radically changed by that love. Now, the, the test is this, that we begin to know and to believe is actually more than just recognizing and assenting. In the Bible, the idea of knowing is an experience that transforms you. For example, in the Old Testament, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and what resulted were children. That's some some superior knowledge. Okay, he knew his wife, and from that resulted children. In other words, knowledge is not simply. a a recognition or assent to some facts that you find agreeable. It is an experience, an encounter that changes your very framework. And you begin to put your trust, you begin to put your faith in that and saying, this is the main thing, that not that I love God, but that he loved me. That God himself is love, not just that he has love, but that he really is love. And that to be in relationship with him is to experience all of his love coming my way. Now, it is essential that you understand that we're not talking about any love that you've experienced anywhere else. For One of the distinctions is that the love of God, it says, produces in you an absence of fear. Every other kind of love that you will ever experience is tinged with fear. For example, when you feel affection, which is what most of us call love, when you feel affection, you can't help but be afraid it's going to go away. Because affection is always a because of. For example, if I say to my wife, I love you because you're beautiful, what happens if she's not beautiful anymore? Then she has to make herself beautiful so that she will be loved. For fear, she is not loved if she's not beautiful. Come on. That's pretty good stuff. you gotta, you got to acknowledge every now and then. I know. Catch up. Catch up. Come on. Okay? Anytime you tell someone, I love you because you're smart. What happens if I'm not smart? What if I do something stupid? Will you stop loving me? Even romantic love is fear-based. It's fear-based. Listen, one of the great songs of my youth was Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow by what? Roberta Flack, right? Am I remembering my pop quiz right here? Okay. Will you still love me tomorrow? You see, what I'm having this amazing, romantic, perhaps even erotic experience, but I'm sitting there going, will you still love me tomorrow? Why? Because what if it's not so romantic in the morning? What if it's not... What he thought it was, or what she thought it was, and suddenly I'm out. See, it's fear based. Even family love, in many ways, even though it's the closest to an unconditional love, even family love is often full of fear. When you go through a divorce, a little child says, Did I cause this? Was this my fault? When a, when a husband and wife divorce, is it not? reality to go this person knew me more intimately than anybody else and rejected me? Is there not something wrong with me then? Do you understand? Every conditional love that you've ever known has fear in it. Even religious love, religious expression are fear based. Have I done enough? Did I sacrifice enough? Will he still love me tomorrow only this love only the love of God can be set to have an absence of fear and the reason is it is an unconditional love he knows what he's gotten into with you he knows your darkest secrets he knows your worst attributes he doesn't love you because of you he loves you because of him The cause of the love is not your performance, it's not your behavior, it's not your looks. The cause of the love is He is love. You can count on it. See, this is what John is saying. Once you've experienced true love, everything changes. Number one, you were made for this. You've been looking for it in all of the relationships, friendships, fellowships even romantic, you've been looking for it in all of these places, you've been looking for a place you don't have to be afraid. Listen to the context of this. The context is that when you appear before God in that judgment, you will do so without fear. You will do so without fear. Listen to me. If you can stand before God without fear, what is any man or woman to you? So there are four characteristics That happen when you understand the love. I started with three and found four, so I forgot to go back and change it. (laughs) Just in case you're looking at my PowerPoint. But the first one is this, confidence. We are confident that is what John says. We are confident that. See, when you have been possessed by unconditional love, when you have taken hold of the fact That you are truly, unconditionally loved. Then what happens is that confidence starts to flow from you. Because see, confidence flows from your inner self. True confidence flows from your inner self. And your inner self is is the seat of and the source of your identity. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Your identity has everything to do with how you perceive yourself as a person. It's your self-concept. Identity, when healthy, is the unity of your public persona and your private self. Identity links your past to your present. See, many of us do not have a true identity. We have identity disunity. In other words, we have a private view of ourselves and a public presentation of ourselves. We are one way in public, we are another way in private. When that is true, you do not have a true identity. Identity by nature means there's a unity, a coherency between your inner self and your public self. You will never be truly confident until who you are inside is reflected on who you are outside. As long as there is a presentation, even if it's an arrogant, braggadocious, confident sounding presentation it's still false because inside you're still messed up broken hidden shameful it's why many of us alternate on the roller coaster of superiority to inferiority why we have such high highs and such devastating lows. it's because we don't have identity unity we have identity disunity and our perception is generally, it's generally, friends, forged before you're 10 years old. And the, the, the power of this, if, it, if, it, if you can understand and listen to me, the power of this is it gets kind of set in stone the things that are said to you when you're a kid. One psychologist that I like said it this way. There is very little cause for a child to question the appraisals of other people. And in any case, he's too, he or she is too helpless to challenge them. Thus, the self-attitudes learned in early life are carried forever by the individual, with some allowance for the influence of extraordinary environmental circumstances and modification through later experience. In other words, if you heard enough times you are useless, you believe you are useless. If you think you're ugly or were told enough times you're ugly, you will believe that you're ugly. I have seen you will not believe the number of women who think they have big ears because their mother or someone told them they had big ears and please cover it with your hair. Their heads grew into their ears. But even in their 40s or whatever, they're still covering it because they're afraid they have big ears. You're saying going, you don't have big ears. But that, that word that was spoken, that thought. You, I remember one saying, our mother saying, you should put some makeup on. You're really, you're not very good looking. You know, to, to her child, can you imagine? I mean, some of you, hopefully you never did this. It's not, that's not love to have done that. And so it's stuck with this child. I remember this one woman, one of the, probably one of the most beautiful uh, women you could ever see Saying to me, she's ugly. And I asked why. She said, well, when I was in eighth grade, the quarterback of the football team, I overheard him talking. And he said, if they just put a bag over her head, we could all look at her. We could all, you know, because she has a good body, but she has an ugly head. And so she's 12, 13, so the braces come off, contacts go in, and suddenly she's beautiful. But she still thinks she needs a bag over her head. Are you tracking with me on this? All right, now listen to it. Listen, please listen to this piece. It's going to take you a little brain power here, all right? All those assessments are not on your essence. All of those assessments are on your externals. Every appraisal is about social interaction. Every appraisal is about how you are in the developmental phase, and yet those appraisals become your view of yourself. Come on, that's worth a counseling session right there. Every one of them is external. Every one of them is during a phase or a time in your life where you've not become who you will be. And yet, you're still judging yourself identity-wise on the basis of those appraisals. In other words, that's why your inside doesn't match your outside. And here is the one person. Who not only knows your social interactions. Who knows your behavioral issues. Who knows you know your grades and all of these things that are externally true of you. He knows your nature. He knows your essence. And in, in the beauty of God. He says you're the one I want. You're the one I love. And the love I'm giving to you is not... You know, it's a love where I know exactly what I'm getting into. I know what you've done. I will never, ever, ever sever the commitment I have with you. I am married to you for eternity. You have my acceptance. You have all the worth and value that I give you, and you are safe. See, if that doesn't, see, if if confidence doesn't arise from that to overcome what was said from the outside, If confidence doesn't start coming from the inside out, then you've not known his love. You've not known his love. Because when you know his love and when you begin to realize the one who is worthy of all my love loves me. Then who is anybody else to say anything about me? Your appraisals, your evaluations are poverty stricken. He knows me from inside out. And He loves me from the bottom to the top. That's who I am. See, that's where the confidence comes from. It doesn't come from the fact that I went to a certain school or that I did this work or I have this amount of money or I wear these clothes or I drive this car. All those are externals that hide my essence. He stands before me and uncovers All of my trappings and says, you're the one I love. You're the one I want and I'm committed to you for the rest of eternity. As long as God exists, you will exist. Well, if you take that, then basically what John says from that is that that love gives you a fearlessness. And and what I mean by that is not that you're never going to face things that overwhelm you. Yes, you are. You're going to face challenges that you've not seen before. There will be times in your life where you'll look and you'll say, the needs are greater than my resources. The demands on me are greater than my strength. There will always be times like that. You don't grow unless that happens. But what I'm talking about is when you face those valleys and you face those mountains, you're not afraid because you're not going to be rejected. If you fall in the valley, you're still a son of God. If you fall off the high place, you're still a daughter of the Most High King. Your essence, your nature hasn't changed because your behavior still hasn't caught up with your identity. As a matter of fact, I say it and I'll say it again and again. A true father is a greater father, a better father when you're more in need. They don't run. They bring their resources. God's love is activated by need, not not deactivated by need. So there are two things that happen in terms of fearlessness. One is you begin to realize, I will never be rejected. This is what we mostly fear, whether you know it or not, the fear of disapproval, the fear of rejection. And what the Father says is, you will never be rejected. I will never leave you or forsake you. But the other thing that it allows you to begin... (laughs) To have such a lack of fear is you're never going to be left out and you're never going to be left behind. This is one of the biggest issues around here. I'll I'll give you an example real quickly. No matter how red the light is, the car still has to go through it. Because they're going to miss something. They're going to be late to something. Or because they're just them and they have a right to do whatever they want to do. You see, underneath that is the fear. I'm going I'm to be left behind. I'm going to be left out. If you get the cookie, then I'm not going to get the cookie. If you get the good job, I'm not going to get the good job. So there's this constant fear, and the competitiveness in this area is off the chart. I mean, yesterday I was going to a restaurant. I saw somebody pull in, see me, and then race me to the hostess stand. <laughs> I beat them. My wife goes, "Go ahead." <laughs> I mean, the fear you might be next in line instead of next in line. What it, see underneath that though is I could miss out. Somebody's getting something that's mine. See, once you realize I have the love of God, the father and he's promised this that whatever you lose in this life he's he's retained for you in the life to come whatever you give up in this life jesus said you will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come so we start going you want the cookie have the cookie you're going to run the red light i'm going to play i'm going to be a defensive driver because i want to live as long as i can live you know you start instead of saying i'm going to beat you I'm going to get what's yours. You start to say, wait, I already have what's mine. It changes everything. Well, the, the last two have to do with the way relationships work when there's unconditional love. They're, they're, very, they're very powerful truths. When love is conditional, you have to make punishment severe. In other words, if you're a parent and you say to your child, take out the trash... You have to make not taking out the trash as unappealing or more unappealing than taking out the trash. It's the case of conditional things. You have to punish someone so that they will do what you want them to do. Even sometimes we punish them this way. We say, if you love me, conditional. If you love me, you will do this. And sometimes we even say it this way. If you really loved me. You see, we're punishing them. We're saying to them, you're not even worthy of my love. You're not worthy of my attention. And then we often have behaviors to back this up. I won't talk to you now. I won't have sexual relationships with you now. I will not do this now. You will not have any of my money now. All of these, see, that's how we negotiate and navigate through conditional love. But what... What John says is because God loves you unconditionally, the fear of punishment is gone. So he's not manipulating you. You didn't come to church today? God's not going to. You, you're here, but those of you on the, on the Internet there. <laughs> you know, it, if it was conditional love, the ones here will be so blessed. They'll get thousands of dollars this week. Everything will happen to them. And those of you who are not here, oh, boy, watch out because that's conditional love and that's how people have lived in church and that's how pastors have controlled churches by making it to where you are so afraid of punishment that you'll sacrifice anything in order in order to avoid punishment let me tell you it's not christian it's not love it's not from god it's from hell because god is not the god who manipulates because he's the God of love. Manipulation is never love. Fear is never love. If you obey God out of fear, it does not count. Because it's for you. When you do anything out of fear, you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it to avoid punishment. You're doing it to get a reward. It's not love. It's a transaction. God doesn't need your fear. He wants your love. The last one is this. And I know I'm running out of time. Is that fourth characteristic of unconditional love. Encountered by a believer. Is that you begin to be willing to receive. Now this might sound simple to you. But it's not. When you receive you lose control. See you know why most of us in here are givers. Is we learned early. When we gave we were in control. When you receive you don't you're not in control and if you get enough bad christmas presents enough things where you said thank you and then re-gift them at the white elephant gift you know after after a while you realize nobody knows me nobody understands my heart no one gives to me that which touches me and so you began to say it's easier to give than it is to receive because i give what i'm in control of It is a scary thing, and this is where the love of God transforms you, where you begin to say, I can't be a giver of this. I can only be a receiver. I I can't produce this. I can't fabricate it. I can't fake it. I either receive it or I don't have it. See, this transforms the way we do relationship with each other. And this this is why John says... He says, if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, then you've never experienced the love of the God you've not seen. It is not about trying to be more loving. If you just try to be more loving, you'll just be more more messed up than you were before. But here's here's how it manifests. You begin to, instead of loving people from affection, instead of loving them from romance, loving them because of obligation, you begin to love them in the way you're being loved. The Bible says this way, it says, if you've experienced unconditional love, it will change the way you relate to everyone else. The Bible says, if anyone says I love God but hates his brother, he's a liar. Listen to me, the church in America has been a liar. We have not loved our brother. We have loved those who are like us. We have loved those who are the same race as us, the same theology as us. But we have not loved in the way John says that we are to love. And part of our weakness is not because the love is unavailable. It's because we haven't repented of the love that we have lived in. You're not my brother because you're smart or you're pretty or because you're you're rich or whatever. You are my brother because you love Jesus and I love Jesus. It's not because we're looking into each other's eyes that we love each other, but because we're looking into our Savior's eyes, and the same love I see there for me, I see there for you. And then when I turn to you, I have that same love in my eyes. Do you know what He delights in your uniqueness? He delights that you came from a different culture. He delights that you don't look like everybody else. He delights because he created you, and you're his masterpiece. And when we get that, we look at each other with dignity and respect and love, and we say, I'll die for you. I know I'm going long, but I, I'm telling you, this. to me, this is the biggest of things. Do you know what? You know what the Lord asked me when I became really started to say I'm going to be a pastor, not just a preacher? He said, Will you die for your people? Will you die for your people? I remember it was this Presbyterian church in Duluth, Georgia, and I said, Lord, you know those people. I'd like to see some of them die, but I'm not sure I want to die for them. I'm just being honest. And then all of a sudden, he broke my heart. And he broke my heart with his love for me. Because he started to remind me what a screw-up I am. How hidden I am. What a liar I am. What a charmer I am. What a, how when I get to the end of my own strength, and when I'm stressed out, I'm negative, and I'm, I'm petty, and I'm, I'm small. He reminded me all the times when I was a kid, and I felt like an oddball, and I just wish my teeth were straight and my eyes didn't need glasses and I wished I wasn't so skinny and I prayed i would be four inches taller. And I think of all of that stuff and he goes, do you understand I was there loving you through all of that? And I knew every piece of that and I loved you. And, I, and see, all I'm asking of you today, I'm reminding you that it results in love for your brothers. I'm reminding you of that, but it doesn't start with love for your brothers. It starts when you look into the eyes of Jesus and you see how much he loves you. See, you will will willingly die for your brothers when you're loved in this way. You will stop taking advantage of them. You'll stop being afraid of them. You'll stop competing with them. And you'll start going, you're my family. But you won't until you first get this peace. I am loved so powerfully. He knows me and he loves me. Will you stand with me? We have people that would pray with you up here if something this morning has touched you and you want to pray about it. But would you let me, as pastor, pray over you? I think twice, I think twice in my 12 years here, the Lord has asked me to lay down my life for this congregation. I believe that both times that I got sick unto death, both times were the Lord saying battle for my presence and my power to be manifest in in a special way at Risen King. And I was ready to go home both times if that's what it took, but I know that I was battling something more than my own weak body. I know that he was doing something in our midst. Would you believe me today as I tell you You are loved with an unconditional love. His eyes are on you. There's nothing of your dark side that he doesn't know. There are no secrets that are hidden from him. He knows you to the bottom, but he loves you to the top. We love him because he first loved us. Sometime this week, look him in the eyes. Whether you're sitting, standing, laying down, look him in the eyes and say, I want to see your love like never before. It's worth it, friends. Everything changes. The truth becomes your truth. Character becomes his character in you. And you begin to love people like never before. This is the difference between Christianity and everything else. It's not just our theology or our behavior. It's that we've been so radically loved. We receive that today in Jesus' name. And we'll see you next week.